This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While gene therapies hold great promise for patients with rare genetic diseases, one obstacle for ultra-rare conditions is that drug developers may view patient populations as being too small to make the development of a gene therapy economically viable. Tasha Gene Therapies, through its partnership with UT Southwestern, is rapidly developing a robust pipeline of gene therapies that leverage the same vector, manufacturing, and course of administration to enable the company to pursue indications that might not otherwise be feasible. The approach shows how rare disease patient advocates, academic researchers, and biotechnology companies can collaborate to enable treatments that would not otherwise be developed. We spoke to R.A. Session II, founder and CEO of Tasha Gene Therapies, about the origins of the company, its unique relationship with the gene therapy innovator Steve Gray and UT Southwestern, and the critical role patient organizations have played in the process. All right, thanks for joining us. No, we I appreciate you guys having me on today. It's a, it's a, it's a lot going on, but always excited to talk about what we're doing. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about Tasha Gene Therapies, its unique partnership with the University of Texas and how this provides a translational pathway for gene therapies for rare neurologic conditions that might otherwise not get on the radar of drug developers. Right. I'd like you to begin with the founding of Tasha and how it was created through a partnership with Steve Gray at UT Southwestern and, and how it all came together. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great story. Um, I've been fortunate to be in rare diseases the majority of my career, gene therapy, probably for the last, call it four or five years, starting with uh, our time over at Avexis, which was really the company that helped validate the modality uh, of gene therapy with the, you know, with the great clinical data generated uh, by Zolgens and eventually the approval. And now, you know, just announced yesterday, it, it, it's reached, it's reached uh, blockbuster status uh, with now having over a billion dollars in sales in a, in, a, in a calendar year. And being part of that first management team really gave us some insights on how to take this technology that was so, you know, groundbreaking at the time and, and, and really one where you wait your whole career to, to work on um, curative therapies and, and to really help scale it. And so um, when, when, you know, we uh, sold Avexis, uh, I took a little bit of time off and was kind of looking for my next opportunity. I'm born and raised in Dallas. Uh, I just so happened to live about 
five minutes away from the university um, and have been a part of a number of, of spin outs uh, at the university, either as a, as a member uh, of a management team, uh, as a board member, and now as a, as a, as a founder. And um, really kind of looking to kind of what I was going to do next. And, and I knew that I didn't want to go back into conventional therapeutics and really wanted to work on, um, you know, kind of curative therapies. And, and at the same time, the university showing a lot of foresight uh, recruited this young, um, you know, this young kind of uh, up and coming translational scientist in the gene therapy space, you know, up and coming saying the guy has just been prolific over the last 10 years, but, but um, showed a lot of foresight into recruiting him away from UNC to UT Southwestern and giving him, uh, basically giving him the opportunity to build from the ground up a gene therapy program that was fully integrated and fully integrated, meaning, you know, had translational capabilities, GMP manufacturing and clinical care all under a single umbrella and and really allowed him to partner with another uh, phenomenal uh, clinical scientist on the uh, on, on the clinical care and uh, and clinical trial side of things in Burj Manassian. And so. Ultimately, when I came on campus um, uh, and met with uh, Steve, and this was in the summer of, t- of 2019, um, and I've known Steve through my time at Avexis, but, but was, had the opportunity to reconnect with him, um, it, it really started off with a simple conversation of just, hey, you know, what are you planning to do now that you have this new role at UT Southwestern? And Steve puts up a slide of about 30 programs um, and said, hey, this, this, this is what we're doing. We're going after these. And, I'm, and I just looked at him <laughs> and I looked at the slide and I, and I said, you know, Steve, this is a company. This is, not a, this is not kind of an academic research lab. You know, how are you planning to take on all of these? And, and you know, he basically said, look, we're using the same capsid. We're, we're kind of taking, you know, what we've done before with the AV9, interthecal delivery, HEC293 suspension, and trying to apply that technology at scale and basically using some of the learnings of what you guys had pioneered at Avexis and really trying to spearhead, you know, really trying to accelerate and move these programs along into the clinic quickly for patients. And, and I basically told him, I, I said, Steve, this is a company. How are you funding this? And he said, well, we're bootstrapping, we're raising, you know, I'm writing grants, I'm getting funding from patient advocacy groups. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm funding a lot of this work out of my startup funds from, for, uh, for his academic lab. And, and I told him, I said, look, you know, gene therapy was extremely hot at the time. People, you know, uh, at, uh, big pharma, big biotech were looking to place bets. VCs were looking to place bets. I basically said, if you spun this out into a company, you would never have to fundraise again. You, you, you would have all the funding that you needed. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, you know, that's a great idea, RA, but would you, you, you know, he's like, you don't have much experience in, in doing that. You know, would that be something you'd be interested on helping to spin this out and, and coming to run it for us? And I said, look, I'd love to help you spin this out, but I wouldn't be interested in, in, in coming to run this for you because I just really never saw myself aspirationally as a CEO. It's not where I wanted to go. I, I was a deal maker. I like doing deals. I was, I was fairly successful at it. Um, and, and it gave me a sense of autonomy, right? I could do a bunch of things at the, at, at, at the same amount of time um, or in parallel. And, and, you know, I told him, look, I'd help you put together the framework for this. 
I'd help you, you know, kind of think about it. I'd help you kind of build it out, but, but really didn't see myself as the CEO for it. Uh, but ultimately, as I got closer and closer to the technology, closer to the indications that we were going after, closer to the patients for, for kind of the lead indications that were going to be first into the clinic, ultimately, uh, I got even more excited about what we we're trying to do and, and decided to come on and help them full time as CEO. As the same, at the same time, a lot of my old Avexis colleagues were, were you know, Avexis had just gotten approved a, f- a few months, uh, a few months ahead. That a lot of them had made the transition into Novartis, but were looking to get into something that was going to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, kind of getting the band back together, so to speak. Uh, and we're looking for the next opportunity. So I made a couple of phone calls. Uh, first being to uh, you know Sean Nolan, who was the former CEO at Avexis, who had who now had transitioned to a number of board roles and to an, uh, investing from his own family office to to kind of just get his his advice on what what this could potentially look like and he loved the idea the second call we made was to paul manning who runs pbm capital and pbm capital was the first investor in avexis um they they held a board seat to avexis up until the time we sold the company and subsequently between pbm and nolan capital they were the first seed investors in tasha and ultimately that kind of gave us the credibility to, to where a number of our old avexis colleagues joined us on the ride so we had a management team that was highly experienced and we were able to couple that with an academic research institution and a gene therapy group that was second to none in the world and many people ask me about Steve Gray. In my opinion, he's the, in my opinion, he's the best translational scientist in the, from a gene therapy perspective in the world. And the guy is literally prolific. He's credited with having five clinical programs in, you know, in the clinic currently. The hope is that uh, we'll quickly get to six by the end of the year, um, you know, five of those being Tasha programs. And then, you know, into next year, we get to double digits. But really, without that academic collaboration, which is very uh, unique in the way that our structure works, we would not have been able to, to kind of uh, accelerate the development of what Tasha has become um, in, in the amount of time that we've done it. Not only... Um, have we transitioned from a a preclinical company to a clinical company? Um, you know, within within call it a, a a year, but we've also transitioned from a clinical company to a pivotal stage company, about to embark on you know our first regulatory discussions around approval pathway, as well as having you know four programs currently in, currently in the clinic, with our fifth uh, entering the clinic for Rett syndrome by the end of the year. So um, what what they've been able to do uh, was really help accelerate uh, the development of these programs uh, in a way that we would not be able to do without them. And that I, wouldn't have answered. <laughs> I, I, I take it a, a lot of these conversations took place with you at your kitchen table in the midst of a pandemic to boot. Yeah, it was it was pretty unique situation last year. So we closed the seed round. In April, you know, the the capital markets were falling apart right around us, but we were fortunate to have some investors that were convicted, understood the modality, understood kind of the unique nature of what gene therapy could bring. And then they then the capital markets totally flipped, right? For for biotech, they were probably some of the best capital markets you could have been in, you know, post that meltdown in in, in you know late Q1, early Q2. At the same time, you know, 
my wife was stuck outside of the country. She, my wife's from Ethiopia. She had went to go visit her family in Ethiopia um, in late January and subsequently got stuck in Ethiopia for a year and a half due to the pandemic and the ability to get back into the country. My daughter was with me. So not only was I raising a nine-year-old, you know, raising a nine-year-old throughout this pandemic um, by myself, but we're also starting a company, raising capital, putting together the foundation of what a management team would look like, um, and then trying to shepherd, you know, some programs through the translational process into the clinic. But fortunate for us, we were able to get it done. And, and, you know, what I would say is, you know, it was, it was the unique combination of an experienced management team coupled with an experienced translational group at UT Southwestern, um, you know, coupled with just really, uh, you know, really um, good, you know, financing environment from a biotech perspective. We, we raised $307 million dollars from my kitchen table. It's crazy. Um, we took the company public in six months from my kitchen table. You know, gone were the days of those road shows where you're, you know, flying around on a, on a plane for two weeks, uh, you know, visiting five different cities trying to raise capital. We did this all, you know, literally in four days, um, you know, at, at my kitchen counter. So it was, it was, it was definitely a weird experience. <laughs> Uh, I, I think of some of the the relationships that have been forged by Jim Wilson and the gene therapy program at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. How unique is the partnership with yeah. Steve Gray and UT Southwestern? And how does it differ from typical agreements we've seen between academia and industry? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. You know, what I would say is the way that we initially started off the collaboration has certainly morphed. You know, the way that we initially structured the way Tasha and, and the UT Southwestern Gene Therapy Group were going to work together was really that they would focus on translational science, um, early, uh, early GMP manufacturing, tox material manufacturing. And as soon as something reached IND enabling, they would, they would initiate the IND enabling studies and then would throw it over the goal line for us to take lead on regulatory discussions clinical development, uh, late-stage GMP manufacturing, uh, and then obviously uh, obviously commercialization. The way that it's actually morphed into is it's almost a single organization, to be quite honest. UT Southwestern really acts as our discovery research arm. We talk to these guys daily. our, Our corporate offices are literally across the street from UT Southwestern. UT Southwestern's uh, admin functions are literally all moving downstairs from our office. So we'll, we'll be in the same building here in the next month or so. Um, and, and it's really, it's, it's, it's really morphed into, you know, this, this kind of um, organic collaboration in the sense that in some cases they'll take things from translational research Lead, the, lead things all the way through the translational development cycle, including IND enabling studies, including regulatory interactions, and lead the clinical development program. A good example of this is, uh, is our SURF-1 program, where once we, once we you know, initiate BLA discussions, we'll take the program on, take the lead there, and then we'll do all the commercial distributions. And, and, and versus other programs where they initially led the development of, and we've decided to take it on. Uh, you know, and kind of lead the late stage clinical development um, 
programs. And, and a good example of that is CLN7, which we just recently announced we've taken a, taken an option to. But really, it, we, we, we kind of co-collaborate on multiple areas. What still holds true is that they typically take on all the translational research, um, early discovery science, construct design, and whatnot. We've taken more of a leadership role in GMP manufacturing for all clinical trials. Um, we've taken more of a leadership role on the IND enabling studies. Um, and, and obviously, we work closely together on protocol development and clinical development. But we've always said UT Southwestern is going to be a gene therapy center of excellence for us on the clinical side. And, and on the translational side, they really operate as our discovery research arm. And so we're constantly taking on new programs, assessing new programs, new targets with them, um, and kind of discussing ways that the portfolio will either will either grow or augment based on new research that they're doing. So it's very dynamic in a sense versus I think other academic collaborations where it's it's just look, you know, there's a there's a very finite set of um experiments that the academic research institution is is uh leading and then once those are done the 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 collaboration is over that's not the way that our collaboration works we're constantly you know looking at new targets together constantly assessing new targets running new experiments um and and hopefully you know continuing to replenish this portfolio as we get things into the clinic into the commercial setting obviously re you know uh you know, kind of uh, retooling the the early kind of research programs to make sure we always have this dynamic pipeline. Earlier this year, you expanded the relationship with UT Southwestern with the launch of an innovation fund. Yeah, what is this fund? How does it work? And, and what do you what will it do? So, so you know, what this innovation fund was really built was to cut down on a lot of. Uh, kind of bureaucracy that was happening based off of, you know, being able to see new ideas coming out of the cross collaboration between UT Southwestern and Tasha. Essentially what would happen if you come up with a new target, you'd have to go write a new, uh, a new SRA, negotiate a new option agreement. And then, you know, uh, you, you're now fearing clear to execute on, on those set of experiments that from start to finish, that could take, you know, a few months. And ultimately what we wanted to do is, if collectively the uh, the uh, cross-functional leadership team um, decided to go after a new target, we wanted to have a pool of money that was already approved by Tasha and the university to be able to just pull from to quickly go and get and, and quickly be able to go in and, and initiate new research. And so basically this is a cross-functional fund that is managed both by, you know, our Tasha's R&D R&D leadership and R&D leadership at UT Southwestern's Gene Therapy Group. They collectively approve new ideas, new targets, um, new new assays or experiments to go after. And once that's been approved by that cross-functional group or, you know, that cross-institutional group, then that funding is released. And we don't have to necessarily wait to go and run new SRAs. So it was a way to basically cut down on the time that it would take to get new experiments and, and new targets um, funded and uh, that work to get underway. So it, it, it's worked beautifully. And now since those funds are in place, 
all we have to do is now go amend that um, that research plan to add to those funds. So we'll be adding to those funds every year, and that'll be a pool of money that both institutions will be able to go pull from in order to keep moving science forward. You touched on the, the large set of programs you can choose yep. from here to, to move into development. Given those choices, how do you prioritize the indications you're pursuing? And is that done through discussions with Steve Gray and his team? So it's a really it's a it's a really good question. So we were fortunate not to have to take on too many of those type of discussions because of where the portfolio was when we in licensed it. It was already appropriately staged. You had some programs that were approaching the clinic. You had a program that was right at the clinic. We were just doing GMP manufacturing. You had some programs that were approaching the clinic, and then you had some programs that were just that animal proof of concept, but you needed to do some further pharmacology studies in order to get it to tease out what the dose response would look like. And then you had some just ideas, right? And so now as we see we've made significant progress in the in the portfolio, you're just now starting to have this natural, um, you, you know, kind of this natural movement of, of the pipeline where programs that were in the clinic or, you know, programs that were approaching the clinic are now in the clinic, programs that were um, in late stage animal proof of concept are now in IND enabling studies, you know, and programs that are now starting to approach, you know, regulatory discussions around approval pathway. And so as you have programs that are now, you know, moving over to the commercial setting, you need to kind of be reinvesting in the, or in, in those early stage targets. And so you'll kind of constantly see this. And that prioritization happens very um that, that it very collaboratively with the team over at UT Southwestern. So again, we des- we we go after targets together. We 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 decide what are the best targets, and we kind of move at the speed of science. And so, what we never want to do is slow down is slow down something that works. What we'll do is decide who is the best partner to take on that program or to lead the development of that program. And we've seen a good example of that with UT Southwestern taking back on the Surf One program. And we basically just did a swap in us taking on the CLN7 program and leading that development. We're fortunate now to be a company of about 180 employees. But to but if you couple that with the infrastructure that's been built over at UT Southwestern and the Gene Therapy Group, they have another 70 employees that works cross-functionally in that group. So collectively, we're about 250 uh, FTEs, you know, collectively working to move this pipeline forward. So it's a pretty robust group. What I'll also say is we, you know, just through the natural design of our portfolio, we're able to take advantage of a a number of economies of scale. Keep in mind, all of our programs are AV9. They're all using the same manufacturing platform and HEC-293 suspension, um, HEC-293 triple plasma transfection and suspension culture. They're all using the same route of administration, which is interstitial delivery. So there's a lot of commonalities that you get just out of holding, you know, controlling for what we consider validated gene therapy technology. At the same time, we feel very strongly that this improves program probability of success and reduces overall program risk. Um, and and so, so those are just commonalities on the scientific perspective. Keep also mind, all these programs are the same call point. The vast majority of these, about 90% of them, are all geared towards pediatric CNS indications. The remaining are adult, the remaining 10% is a, are um, adult CNS indications, so adult neurologists. 
But still, again, there's a lot of synergies that you gain by kind of holding a lot of things consistent between one program to the next, which allows us, again, to gain the advantage of a lot of economies of scale that other companies aren't really able to tease out. If you're using a different capsid for every program, you know, that uh, that means you got to use a different manufacturing process for every program, which probably means you got to use a different route of administration for every program. And you're not able to you're not able to really take advantage of significant economies of scale. So fortunate for us, we control for a lot of things. And by controlling for these things, not only are we able to gain significant economies of scale, but we feel strongly that we improve uh, probability of success and reduce uh, the portfolio risk. I've had a series of conversations with patient advocates yeah. where, I mean, there was just an amazing streak where they tell me they, you know, they went to Steve Gray and all of a sudden they've got a, a program in development by Tasha. Yeah. Um, what role have patient advocates played in driving these programs and, and getting them kind of on the radar and into development? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, this is what is so nice about being able to partner with a, a translational scientist like Steve Gray, because he does it for the right reasons. He knows the right balance between perfection and good enough and good enough to make sure that we have an impact for patients. Right. And, and that's a very that's a very you know, tough nuance for uh, a scientist, an academic scientist, because they always are they're inquisitive by nature. Right. And they're always trying to solve the next problem. But sometimes the next problem really doesn't matter. And, and today is what matters. What we say all the time is time is neurons, right? Uh, particularly in these neurodegenerative disease, once diseases, once a neuron's gone, you're not getting it back. And so, and so for Steve, it, it's really started and his, and his motivation has started with the patient. All of his funding, a lot of his early funding came from patients. You know, I look at the John Exona Neuropathy Program. This is the first intercecally dosed gene therapy um, in history. The, the clinical trial started in 2015. Steve is credited with dosing the first patients uh, intercecally, you know, you know, back then, that's six years ago. That funding came from Hannah's Hope, right? And and really, they drove the early, you know, development of 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 gene therapy um, as a modality and, and really help to educate the field. When you start to think about the CLN1 program, you know, that funding and, and, and that motivation came from Taylor's Tale, which was um, the advocacy group leading the way in CLN1. When you think about, you know, GM2, you, you think about uh, uh, advocacy groups like the NTSAD. When you think about Rett syndrome, you think about the advocacy groups like, uh, you know, the, 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 the Rett uh, Research Foundation. And uh, the, it, it's just a number of these groups um, have just been instrumental. Angelman, it's the FAST uh, research. Uh, it's, it's the FAST advocacy group, right? A number of these advocacy groups have literally been the reason why uh, these programs have moved forward, particularly some of the local research groups that were really instrumental as Tasha was getting started. Um, they were working right along with uh, Steve Gray on a number of programs, SLC 6A1 Connect, um, Cure Surf One, um, you know, um, it, it just, it, just a number of these programs that, uh, that I think you know, Steve Gray and the great science wouldn't be there without, without these advocacy groups. 
too many to, to, to name. Um, what, what, what role do you see them playing in the development of therapies, if any, and, and in the commercialization of them eventually? So, so ultimately, from a development perspective, you know, helping us, we always run patient focus group, particularly on our, um, in, our in our clinical development, uh, as we're thinking about, you know, endpoints, understanding what's important to patients, understanding you know, functional areas where, which would be meaningful to them and kind of understand the natural history of these diseases. These patient advocacy groups have just been just extremely instrumental um, in, in just allowing us to have an insight to what's, what's important for them and, and kind of the day in the life of, of, of a patient, the diagnostic odyssey that they go through to get, to get diagnosed and, and, and honestly places where that can be uh, approved. These are always areas I think are going to be important uh, in the development as, as you're kind of in the development cycle of any one, um, any one program. Once you, once you're commercial, I think obviously, or at least embarking on those regulatory discussions, making sure these regulatory agencies know what's meaningful to them, what good looks like, right? And and you know, making sure that um, that 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 advocacy is playing a really hands-on role in in making sure that these these therapies get over the goal line. You know, I think we've seen this play out in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We've seen this play out in in spinal muscular atrophy. I think we've recently seen it play out in Alzheimer's research of, you know, really advocacy playing a real role in helping um, these programs get registered. And, and, and but but go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it, it, I'm, I'm wondering if there's an example of how an advocacy organization may have helped make some decisions about the development of a therapy for you. Yeah. You know, I, I think just real world helping us to, helping us understand what endpoints are meaningful. I'll give you an example uh, for our lead program, Tasha 120, which is for giant axonal neuropathy. Um, you know, people always think about this as a, as a uh, disease of uh, uh, the central nervous system or neuromuscular disease, right? But really one of the biggest functional areas where patients find uh, debilitating is, is loss of vision. And because when a patient typically loses their vision, they lose the ability to communicate, they lose that connection with the world. And that's something to be quite honest, that, um, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily uh, have, it's not something that would have necessarily just stuck out to you, to be quite honest. It's not something that necessarily thought to be uh, a big issue. But as you go into the natural history, a lot of these patients have debilitating loss of blindness. And it's something that, that second to loss of, um, you know, motor function this is something that really worries patients and caregivers, like the loss of vision. And so as we started to think about uh, endpoints uh, for our clinical trial, this was something that was, you know, smartly built into uh, the natural history uh, study by the partners over at, which is being led by uh, our partners at the NIH and Carson Bonneman, but also the interventional trial, which is also being led by Carson Bonneman at the NIH. But this was something that we're, we're certainly going to be talking to regulators about because it's not something that would, would naturally stand out to, uh, to a person when talking about a neuromuscular disease. And uh, as you talk about 
TSHA 120, your, your lead program. Where is it the clinic and, and what's known about its safety and efficacy to date? Yeah. So, so this lead program, um, uh, obviously, this is the first intercalate dose um, gene therapy program in history. Um, we're fortunate to have, um, you know, clinical efficacy data on, on uh, two doses where we see clear arrest, clear arrest of disease progression. First patients were dosed in 2015. Um, uh, we, we see clear rest of disease progression at our two middle doses, which is 1.2 E to the 14 total VG and 1.8 E to the 14 total VG. We'll, we'll be reporting data on our uh, high-dose cohort, which is 3.5 V to the 14 total VG later this year. A win for us is, is basically recapitulating the data that we've already seen which is essentially um, clinically meaningful slowing the disease and clear rest of disease progression. Um, we're now, you know, with some patients have more than four years worth of data. So not only do we have uh, clear separation and clear rest of disease progression as measured by the MFM32, but across a whole host of other in, um, functional endpoints, including visual acuity at, at multiple doses. But we have long-term safety, long-term durability, uh, dose response data. And so, again, we feel strongly that with the data hand, that we have in, in hand today that, um, you know, this uh, program meets all the meets all the uh, requirements for approval. So that's going to be our going in position as we embark on scientific advice uh, and in the phase meetings with the regulators, both in, in the U.S. and in Europe. And so um, the way that we've characterized this is into a couple of scenarios. We look at XUS um, and, and U.S. in two separate buckets. So if I took S- XUS first, um, you know, this, this program as it stands today meets all the the requirements for what we consider conditional approval to meet. And that's a clear pathway in Europe. Um, and so that's going to be our going in position is uh, that this program hits all those boxes. And that's a clear pathway. And I've been fortunate to be able to get programs through that pathway. And so as our head of R&D and chief medical officer, C.S. Prasad. And so, you know, as we embark on those sc- discussions, we think that that will enable an MAA in uh, late 2022 and a commercial launch in 2023. Keep in mind, a conditional approval in Europe is a full approval. And so you'd be able to reference that approval to get reimbursed early access and name patient programs over the goal line in multiple markets around the world, which are known to reference Europe and U.S. approvals. So that could be Turkey, Israel, the GCC region of the Middle East, parts of Latin America that have good reimbursements for rare diseases like uh, Brazil and and Colombia, uh, parts of uh, Asia as well. So again, this is a tried and true pathway. The U.S. we see it 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 uh, breaking down into a couple of scenarios: two high probability of scenarios, one low probability. So the the two high probability of scenarios essentially is that the FDA looks at the data set that you have in hand, basically says, look, good safety, good long term durability good dose response, clear rest of disease progression, good natural history. We now have eight years of natural history data and basically says, look, you know, uh, um, this study checks all the boxes. If you look at the guidance that the FDA issued around the development of gene therapy for neurodegenerative diseases that was issued in January of this year, um, this study meets all those requirements. 
essentially, you know, the argument is really going to be around your commercial grade material. Um, the goal is to the, the goal is to basically manufacture um, our product using that same process. We're using the same cell line the same media, the same bioreactors, and we're using the same CDMO that manufactured the clinical grade material. And so it's a like-for-like -like process. So that's what we're going to be going in with. The only difference is we're moving from the clinical manufacturing facility to the commercial manufacturing facility. That's literally it. And so we're going to be making the argument around doing analytical comparability. If the, if the FDA goes for that argument, that would enable a late 2023 BLA. The FDA could come back and say, look, we like for you guys to treat a few patients uh, using the commercial grade material. The patients are already identified because, they're, because we have a number of patients that are currently in the natural history study that we're, we'd be able to roll into the interventional trial. So they may say, look, treat two to three more patients for six months prove clinical comparability, then use that as the basis for the BLA. That would enable probably a mid-2023 um, BLA and then hopefully a late 2023 approval or either early 2024 approval. And then, and then a low probability of what we would see would be the FDA coming back and saying, you know, potentially do a... Uh, a uh, confirmatory study. Honestly, we just wouldn't know what else to do. You just basically do this study over again. So we see that as a low probability. And the FDA's guidance basically, you know, says when it's appropriate to use natural history as a comparator. Um, and this study checks all the boxes. So, so we think scenario one, scenario two would be high probability. So it'd either be a worldwide launch in 2023 or an ex-US launch in 2023 with an early 2023, uh, early 2024 US launch. That's how we're, we're framing it. Yeah, I, I think of the NIH's platform vector gene therapy program. Yep. Uh, it's Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, which you're a part of, I should note. Yep. Um, and you seem to be doing what, what they're trying to work That's out. That's exactly because, right. You know, you've got this single vector and this, you know, the same, you're just swapping out the genetic material essentially and delivering it in the same way. How much time and cost savings yeah. are you able to realize doing this? And is it, is it enabling the development of gene therapies that otherwise wouldn't be commercially viable? You're, you're absolutely right. It allows us to be able to go after smaller indications that from an economic perspective, you know, you would say, wouldn't necessarily you, you wouldn't necessarily get the return on investment but for us if the biology is clear and we have the technology to address it it really allows us to go after those ends of hundreds versus you know having some arbitrary cutoff around you know um around npv and so not only is it is it is it allowing us to go after kind of smaller smaller indications you're 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 absolutely right around time and cost to test. Keep in mind, we're not changing the manufacturing process. It's the same manufacturing process. In most cases, a lot of these diseases have the same endpoints. Um, and and when you start to think about operational aspects from a clinical uh, trial perspective, we're using the same 
pharmacy manual because again, it's it's the same capsid. We're using the same interthecal route of delivery, so you're using the same you know drug to device interaction studies. We've even had in the last three months seven interactions with regulatory authorities around the world, and we've had regulators basically tell us, look. You know, when it comes to certain aspects of your filing, you don't have to do these studies over again. Just reference your last filing. Think about this more from a platform perspective versus individual programs. And that was actually reassuring to us, um, you know, from some of the regulators um, as they started to think about the this as a true platform and a, and a plug and play. And so for us, that just allows us it's another reason why we're we're. Uh, able to do so much um, with and, and, and actually do it at scale and, and, and the speed in which we were able to do it. And keep in mind, we'll have five clinical programs. Um, we started the year, you know, we started the year with one clinical program. We ended the year last year, um, you know, with our first just being approved to be in the clinic. And we'll finish this year with five and hopefully, you know, somewhere between eight to 10 next year. You're well-funded at this point. You've got a, a rich pipeline. You, you've got a, a BLA in your sights. Yeah. What do you think the, the challenge of proving this model is going to be? You know, for me, it's, it's, it's really, I think, at, at, at some point, um, it's going to be, you can't do everything, right? And, and so it's going to have, you're going to have to make some trade-offs. There are going to be some really interesting opportunities that you that that um, you want to go after, but but that you're not going to be able to go after. I'll give you a perfect example in this. We have a program in tauopathies, right? That we're extremely excited about, and particularly where Alzheimer's development is, um, and the excitement around some of the new advancement in Alzheimer's development. And in that program, into itself, is a pipeline, right? You're you're you know. MAPT-associated tauopathies include not only Alzheimer's, but it also includes uh, frontal temporal dementia. It also includes progressive supranuclear palsy, uh, CTE, to just name a few. And we just, as a company our size and and, and what we're doing, we don't have the infrastructure that's going to be able to support an Alzheimer's indication, right? So eventually you're going to have to go out and seek, you know, scale and partnerships with Big Pharma and other places to where you're able to utilize, you know, some of just that natural breadth and, and scope that they have, but that they've been building up over the last hundred years or so since they've been into in, in existence. But ultimately, I think we're going to be always a source of innovation. We're going to be, you know, we have, um, you know, our our goal is to be fully integrated. You know, we've brought on the, the, the best and the brightest from a gene therapy perspective, all the way from you know, the development from, G- from, 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 you know, gene therapy manufacturing, um, uh, clinical care, all the way through commercialization, right? Uh, and started to build out that commercial team. And that commercial team is the same commercial team that launched Zolgensma. So we started to build and, and put in the framework in order to be leaders in, in, in rare diseases. Uh, but also, we have, we have aspirations of being able to go after larger markets, um, and helping to kind of drive that innovation cycle in larger markets. So I think eventually you'll see us go after larger indications, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's uh, indications that are, that are non, 
monogenic and, and where gene therapy could really play a role, whether it's vectorized antibodies or knockdown approaches or, you know, areas where you're able to go after novel mechanisms to address a large number of diseases with a single construct. We have the first of these, right? Like I said, first is, you know, our, our, our micro RNA program for, for MAPT associated tauopathies. We have another for MAPT associated, I'm sorry, we have another for uh, GYS1 knockdown that you're able to take a single construct and go after a number of indications. Glycogen synthase disorders like Lafora or adult polyglucosin body disorder or even Pompe. So you'll start to see you'll start to see more of these platforms within a single within the single program uh, and learn more about these next year. And we'll start to get away from these monogenic diseases as we go after and we solve more of these. But certainly I think the use of partnerships and collaborations with, um, you know, big players that have, you know, kind of more scale and scope with us is going to be needed. And did your wife get home from Ethiopia? <laughs> she eventually did uh, about, about six months ago. So it wasn't that, it wasn't that long ago, uh, but we were certainly excited to, to, to see her when she got back. So uh, all is well. So <laughs> Didn't want to leave people hanging. Exactly. RA Session Second, founder, president, and CEO of Tasha Gene Therapies, all right. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.